0: The example I always use is Nike with just do it. They didn't say do it. They didn't say do. They said just because the personality, your personality shines through with the extra words. I saw a bag of chips yesterday that said like, you need this on the bag. But it was really funny. It was like junk food, like snacky junk food. And it's funny because either you can be mad and say it's presumptuous or you can be like, I do need that. But the shortest copy would not to have that at all. Right. Would just be to say chips. Chips. But we know that. And we know like if you look at menu items. Yeah. If you look at menu items, if you add like pan seared scallops instead of scallops, right? So it just drives me nuts when I see that.
1: Hi, this is the Marketing Meeting and I'm your host, Itır Eraslan. Every two weeks, I meet with experts and we talk about topics related to brands, marketing and businesses. We sometimes add random lifestyle topics too. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the new season of The Marketing Meeting. I had to give a short summer break, which turned out to be like a six-month sabbatical break. But I was on to something and I had excuses because I was moving to New York City just to be closer to some experts like my guest today, James Lorraine. <laughs> James, welcome.
0: Thank you. Thank you. New York, that's, you're close, <laughs> but you're still a few states away and a lake.
1: If we are close in time zone, I right. feel that we are really close. Okay, that counts, that counts. I'll give you that. <laughs> that counts too. Yeah. I would like to start by reading a small part from your LinkedIn bio. Oh, that's is terrifying.
0: That okay? All right. I guess so.
1: <laughs> okay. So here is James in his own words. My dad always told me that the key to success was to surround myself with brilliant people. And I think he was on to something. I've done everything from medical device engineering to growing my B2B tech copywriting business from zero to six figures in less than a year, to leading the growth engine for an up-and-coming SaaS startup fighting against the status quo of crappy push notifications. (laughs) And who knows what's around the next turn. Follow me for daily fun facts on random, occasionally gross topics. (laughs) Sure. So, I'm in the last sentence, which is the daily fun facts, random, on random and occasionally gross topics. Mm-hmm. I mean, someone, if the listener is following you on LinkedIn, they would relate to what I'm telling here, right?
0: Yeah, they'd probably know.
1: <laughs> uh, so, then I would like to start with the fact that why and how did you decide to switch from medical device engineering to a copywriter?
0: Uh, yeah. So, I went to college for engineering. And the reason why is, as an 18-year-old, 17-year-old, you have no idea what you want to do for the rest of your life. So my mom said, you're good at math and science, go be an engineer. So I said, sounds good. So that kind of led me down that path. I started as industrial, switched to mechanical, and then electrical, because I wanted something hard. If I'm paying so much for college, I may as well learn something that I know nothing about, right? So I did that. I became an engineer, magna cum laude, all that fun stuff. And the medical device part was just what jobs are available. Those are the jobs you take, right? So I worked at Stryker, who manufactures medical tools. Mm-hmm. And I did that for 10 years, and I really didn't love it. Turns out I can do engineering. I did the higher levels of math and all the calculus for I really liked. I was good at physics. I enjoyed it. But I didn't actually like sitting in a cubicle all day and doing engineering work. So, But I thought I was kind of forced to. And then I also had an influence in my life who kind of made me fall in love with buyer psychology and people psychology and understanding how people tick and all that stuff. So jumping from engineering to, I'll say, a softer skill like marketing or something isn't very clear cut. So I actually was saved, I would say, by a salesperson who said, do you like your job? And I said, I do. And she said, no, I don't. I think you would be better at sales. So she talked me into switching into electronic sales. So I did. And then I think some of that experience of one-on-one sending emails to buyers, seeing what works, what doesn't, understanding buyer psychology and things like that kind of made me understand that I really like the marketing aspect almost more than the sales because I feel like it's a lot more psychology and a lot less relationship based. And when I say relationship based, I mean like not schmoozing people. So that kind of led me down the path of marketing. And then I will say of all things, COVID probably gave life to my copywriting business. Because I was traveling for sales and all of a sudden COVID, no travel. So what do you do with the extra two to six hours you have per day that you would be driving? And that allowed me to spin up my copywriting business. I always tell people, you know, it's this tangled path in this road. And I've always hated the interview question of like, where do you see yourself in five years? Because it's total bullcrap. Like nobody has any idea. And to pretend like you have an idea is silly. Right. So I've learned to just enjoy the kind of bumps and twists and turns along the way, because honestly, the path and the 10 years of work I didn't enjoy led me to where I am now, which I do. So it's kind of how that all started and spun up.
1: Mm -hmm. You are like a copywriter for 10 years or more because you have a niche. So I wonder, how did you find that niche? Because two years is a very short span of time, and then you sound like, and you act like a real expert on this area, which you are. Could you tell me about your niche specifically?
0: Yeah. So the difference between a copywriter that earns very little and a copywriter that can earn very much, one cheat code to get you into the higher revenue threshold is to specialize. So the question is, how do you pick that niche? How do you specialize? Some people do it by what they love. So I'm talking to a lady on LinkedIn. She loves pets. She's obsessed with pets. So being a copywriter for pet brands makes sense. She totally loves pets. She will spend her free time researching and not feel like it's research. Like that's great if you really enjoy it. The other thing, though, is what do you have that's so unique about you that other people can't really copy it easily? So for me, that was the technical stuff. It was because I had an engineering background and a lot of copywriters do not have engineering backgrounds. So that was kind of unique and stood out. The other thing is, you know, it's funny because you say two years is a short time. Two years is a short time. But I had over a decade of experience trying to explain what I did at work, which was electrical engineering, to my non-technical wife and her family. So, you know, we'd go around the dinner table and everyone would talk about their day and everyone was interested in whatever everyone else was talking about. And they'd ask me how my day goes. And I would say, I found out that like a motor controller circuit trip current wasn't tripping because of the capacitance in my probe. And everyone would be like, what are you talking about? So it took me a long time to try to figure out how to explain things that are otherwise complex or you'd have to go to school for a while into things that they would understand. So it takes self-reflection. But I kind of found that this was my niche. Like a lot of people that I worked with said, just get used to not talking to your wife or to your family or to whoever about what you do for work because nobody understands it. It's too technical. I'm like, I hate that. So it's easy to look back in hindsight and say it was on purpose. Like I built this all because I'm brilliant or something. But a lot of it you fall into because I realized that explaining complicated things in a simple way was a skill and something that people valued and that didn't click right away. I didn't realize that. So it was kind of the culmination of that experience. Like I said, you either do what you enjoy and a lot of people have a lot of success with that or if you're, you know, in a situation where you have just a crazy unique background and we all have a unique background, that's the fun of it. We can draw on those experiences to kind of build your own niche.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. This feels like I'm listening to you. It felt like I was listening to myself like... 12 years ago when I moved to marketing, because I'm an engineer too, I moved from product to retail and then to marketing. I was feeling very bad about the time that I lost in the product side of the business because everyone was out of the college and they were working with an agency or they were already working in the marketing field. Whereas I was like, you know, at the age of 34 something, (laughs) I was completely new to marketing. But then later on, I recognized that that diverse background from product to retail to marketing really helped me figure out a different path in marketing. It was giving me like a different sight actually. So, I mean, I would like to ask you a question. How do you do your research and without getting lost in research? Because I could, for example, for myself, I do a lot of research too, but I sometimes get quite lost. And when you are doing copywriting, you have to do lots of research.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes. And one other thing like we talked about kind of separately on a call earlier was having ADHD, having ADD, your brain goes in every different direction. So there's kind of an added level of complexity of how do you research something like you said, without going down the rabbit hole. So what I have found is you need to have a framework and a plan before you start your research. This can be dangerous and a lot of people don't like it because then you tend to find research that agrees with your plan, right, if you don't do it correctly. So the key is you have to be open to changing your mind if you find research that doesn't agree with you. That said, usually you have an assignment. An assignment is a product, we need to market a product, we need to market a thing, or it might be a blog, or there's a purpose to everything we're writing, whether it be a homepage, a blog, an article, whatever. In setting up a framework, I like to do what I call a level of consciousness or a stream of consciousness when I write. So what I try to do is keep in mind the buyer's perspective as they hit each subsequent section of a, we'll say, website. So you get on a website and your first thought is, what the heck is this? And then what's the basic framework of how does it work? How do I know it works? What are the benefits I get? What are the features? Some websites you want to lead with features versus benefits if there's too many competitors. Anyway, you start to frame out what each section is and the question it needs to answer. And then that guides your research. So it's easier to explain in a blog than a website. Although with the website, user reviews and things like that are absolute gold. And I will spend hours reading that. None of that is wasted if user reviews are available. But a blog is a great example of something where you'll have a mission. So we'll say, I think we've talked about cybersecurity before. So we have a cybersecurity blog and we need to understand what level our audience is at. So if our audience is someone who doesn't feel like they need cybersecurity, you can already see the gap that we need, right? We need to educate them on why mm-hmm. cybersecurity is a big deal. Okay. Now we have a framework for what we need to research. So now when we research, we're looking for why is cybersecurity a big deal? And that can take you into things like how many hacks are there? What percentages of business have been hacked? What, how much money do businesses lose when they get hacked? And kind of we have more targeted things that we're researching Right. another thing is you could say, what is cybersecurity, which is more broad. But my point is, once you do that in the impacts, then it's like, so we'll say baseline impact. The next thing is people would say, well, it's probably not going to affect me. That could be a next logical path. Hmm. What is it? Does it really matter? Yeah, it affects 80 percent. Okay, well, it won't affect me. Right. So sometimes you can call that out directly, like if it will affect you, it's when. So then you find more stats that kind of reinforce the fact that companies that thought they were safe, big companies get hit, small companies get hit. Helps you put a framework around what that research is before you bring in your product as a hero and things like that and use user research to help emphasize the benefits of your product and stuff and, under- and help quell people's feel fears by understanding what they're concerned about. So some people get intimidated by research in the same way they get intimidated by a blank page because there's infinite possibilities. Mm. The trick is, for me anyway, you have to put in some kind of framework for What research do I need that fills this hypothesis? I don't say argument. I say hypothesis because, again, you have to be open to being wrong. If you find all the research, it turns out you're totally wrong. It doesn't affect most companies, but when it does, it's huge. You know, for example, you have to be open to that and don't try to force your narrative over the research. But, yeah, you have to have some form of framework or else you will get lost trying to research.
1: So if I understand correctly, you say you start with like an aim is it a blog post or is it a website landing page? What's the purpose of this content? Where are we going to use this content? right? Mm -hmm. And then the next topic is like, I feel that you are trying to search for the anxiety and tension points of the person who lands to that website. Mm -hmm. right? For example, when it's a blog post, then I might say, okay, I would like to learn more about this topic. So maybe then you go technical. Whereas on the website, it's like you're probably landing by a Google search or by a Google ad, right? And then you think about those, I think, psychologies of humans, Mm -hmm. right? That are landing to the content that you are creating.
0: Yes. There's a subtle difference between what a business wants to say and what a user wants to hear. Sometimes it's a huge difference, right? Sometimes businesses only want their narrative. They are the best and all that stuff. It's a wide gap between what the business wants to say and what the user wants to hear. Sometimes it's not so wide. So for example, people know I put my headline and then I put, you know, for my website, we'll say, I put my headline, I put my stats or logos up top, you know, of all the customers I serve. I talk about my benefits. I talk about my features. I talk about like, this is a pretty standard framework, right? And it might work. It might work very well, but it depends on your customer. So if you are, for example, in an industry where there are a lot of competitors that are very similar, the benefits may be understood. So the, the user might understand the benefits very clearly. The features are what differentiates you in this case, and you should lead with features over benefits. So this is what I'm talking about, that. The business might want to talk about one thing or the other. In another case, business might want to talk about their features. This is actually probably more common, right? Businesses want to talk all about their features, but they may not have expressed what the actual benefit of their product is yet, and that might be where the customer's mind is. So that's where I'm saying you got to focus on that stream of consciousness. What is the buyer thinking at each of these points? Do they want to see features first? they want to see benefits first? What features mean the most to them or benefits? And kind of work from that perspective. So yeah, so there is a purpose to the piece you're writing. And it's important that we focus on what the buyer, what the customer, what the user is looking for themselves and not so much what we want to tell them.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's say if I'm buying a TV, let's say, and I'm a TV buyer mm-hmm. and I landed on a site, would I be more interested in the benefits or the features? How would I know that?
0: See, it's kind of an interesting one. And it depends on your product, too, because if you have a product that is crappy with features, you know, you don't have a lot of features, you have a lot of benefits, then leading with benefits makes sense. If you have one that the features are so advanced that people don't understand them, then benefits might be okay unless your buyer is someone who is very advanced. So take audio equipment. Audio equipment's a great example. You can have audio features that 99% of people will not understand, but to the 1% who do, they will spend gobs of money. And now you found a new niche, right? You need to market to the people who really appreciate that single feature. So it's not always a black and white. But for surface level, a lot of TVs, you could say, well, is the benefit that you get escapism? You don't have to worry about your life for a while. Is the benefit that it works for a specific space like a curved TV? You can see it from anywhere. So if you have a weird shaped living room, you can see it from anywhere. That would be Mm -hmm. one of the benefits of it. There's really a lot to explore, but it depends on the audience and the product that you have. TVs are a fun one because you can quickly get pulled into a cost battle where yours is the same as everybody else's, or if you find, like I said, that one magical thing that other people don't have, you can create Mm -hmm. an incredible niche with even something that's considered a commodity like a TV.
1: Yeah, you mentioned that like a majority of the people that are landing to your page is looking for a TV probably That's okay. And then that's cheap also. But like 1% of the tech buyers would probably focus on the features and they already know that language and so on. What's the industry approach to that? Would they create like different landing pages or is it like one main landing page for everyone?
0: I would say you have to do some soul searching at this point. One of my favorite quotes is from Seth Godin who says, don't race to the bottom or you just might win or worse, come in second place. So let's say you built this TV and it has some unique feature in it and you create a generic benefits page, you're now competing on price Mm -hmm. as opposed to reaching out to those specific people who want that specific feature and understanding it. If you did create a different landing page for that, there's no saying that those people for sure would get to that page. So if you had a price difference between the two pages, right, one of them you're competing on price, the other one you have an amazing feature. Now you've created this weird dichotomy where somebody might get on your page and find like, hey, wait a minute, I thought this was 2000 bucks, and it's only 400 bucks, right? So you can get into some slippery slopes. I think at that point, you need to decide if you're going to be a Bose, if you're going to be a Klipsch, if you're going to be high-end, or if you're going to be Sony uh, and generally thought of as a less high-end brand. So the TV one is really interesting because there's a lot more to it. And as a copywriter, these are the questions that I would be asking. What are we trying to do here? And you have to understand as a copywriter, what are the features? So you can go into the benefits of that feature versus a TV that doesn't have that feature and then understanding if there's a market for it and things like that. So it's actually a really good example because it's typically a commodity space, Mm -hmm. but I don't actually own a TV, but I would, uh, (laughs) I'm sure there are some out (laughs) there. You don't? (laughs) No, that's why I get stuff done. Like the Samsung had the QLED So they had the LED that emphasizes the green. And I think our eyes have like twice the green receptors of any other color. And so the greens really (laughs) pop and you really notice it. That is a cool feature that can help you differentiate and then on a price difference. So how do you find most Mm -hmm. people don't care they want a TV. Some people that picture quality really matters. So how do you talk about that? Gamers are another example of a really niche market. The most important thing for games. And again, I'm not a computer gamer, but I hear the most important thing for computer gamers is black. Which sounds really weird, Mm. but it's because if you're playing this dark shooter game, like the last game I played was Goldeneye, which is amazing. If you're playing some dark shooter game and there's somebody around a corner, like if you have a TV that's truly black, you can see the gray gun slide out from behind the corner and you know there's somebody there. If you have a TV that can't achieve pure black, then everything looks gray and you'll never see them coming. So it's what is that niche? You know, the bright green group doesn't care about the pure black group. You watching a movie, do you really care about pure black? I mean, contrast, it looks nice, but you might care more about the green. <laughs> and this is LED versus LCD and all that stuff. But you see what we did, though. We talked about the feature, which is pure black. And then we talked about the benefit, which is you can mm-hmm. see the sniper behind the corner. That's getting to know your audience more than yeah. the feature because its you can see everybody. How can I see everybody? Well, because black on this TV is actually black. Shadows are different. Yeah. From things, you can see things in the shadows, right? This is the part of the fun of it. You get to explore all of this as you're writing. So,
1: I think in that case, it's really important that you are also in contact with the brand that you are working a lot because, I mean, those people can shorten the, because we came here by talking about research and how not to get lost in the research. I think in that sense, working really close with the brand might help, but it Mm -hmm. might also not help because the brand people might be biased about in their own world, which you might not bring up the objective look. So, I mean, after you do the research, I'm going to jump into the type of content that converts, because nowadays everyone is talking about templates, especially on LinkedIn, you see Mm -hmm. that, I mean, you have to have a template and once you have the template and you hook the person and then you're the king. What do you think about that?
0: I think it really depends on what you're trying to accomplish for what template you have or use. So one thing that's interesting, Unbounce did a study that found out that, I think it was like they increased their conversion rate by 90% or 190%, something big, something really big, by changing start your free trial to start my free trial. And I think it was actually like start your 30-day trial, start my 30-day trial. And the small change of the call to action, massive boost. All right. And then what happens?
1: From your to my. Yep. Just changing
0: (laughs) it from second person to first person. But then what happened? Everybody and their mother who found that changed your to my. And now the playing field is level. Or take HubSpot. Like, people use HubSpot cold email templates. And now it's to the point where you're like, that's a HubSpot cold email template. Like, because you can start to tell. You can start to see through the templates. So I feel like templates are valuable for bringing really crappy up to mediocre. And not sounding mm-hmm. rude, but like a lot of people are in that really crappy space. So, so they can serve you a good purpose or be a good building block to get you to kind of where most other people are. Templates do not take you to the exceptional. And again, for some people, that's fine. Mm-hmm. They're fine not being exceptional. Some people want that extra layer. And for that extra layer, you can't use a template to get you there.
1: Maybe at least not always, right? Yeah, I I don't know that there are any
0: good examples of like a template. I'd be interested if somebody has one, but of following a template that has just taken you to like amazing heights that nobody else has reached. Like if you think of every great advertising campaign or every great message or cold, I remember somebody reached out on LinkedIn and they're like, hey, I bet you have a lot of back pain. Do you have a lot of back pain? Because you like probably sit behind a computer all day. I'm like, oh my gosh, like maybe that was a template. But I haven't seen anything like that. I'm like, I do. And he's like, Can I give you some tips? I'm like, Sure. And now he's actually an illustrator, and the guy just did illustration for my li- latest ebook. But it was like, How random of a reach out. But where is my HubSpot template saying, Ask people about back pain? Because they probably have it. You know, I'm like, Well, anyway. So I have not found yet where, again, anyone has taken a HubSpot template and made it into something that's like earth shattering. Because usually once the template gets released, then so many people use it and it's kind of, you can see patterns, you know, in Canva when people are using Canva, because you're like, oh yeah, I've seen that clip art there too. And you can see when people use the basic website builders and the basic, you know, it gets you to workable, which again, for some people is fine, but it doesn't take you beyond workable.
1: I think for LinkedIn, it kind of works because I mean, like most of the people out there, are they're just new people writing something. And then, as you said, I mean, It's taking them from the crappy level to, let's say not crappy, but introduction level to the intermediate level, let's say, uh, by using, uh, adopting a template in that case.
0: Yeah, but still, it's funny because I think the ones that if you take a new person and they post something. So we'll say, you know, like uh, copy hackers wrote something about your copy should say you. Like you shouldn't say me, you should say you. You Mm -hmm. should say you as much as possible. Don't talk about yourself. Talk about your customer, right? Everything should be you, you, you. So people post something like that i'm going to post a helpful copywriting tip and i think they see marginal success and typically one or two likes or something and then if they post something incredibly vulnerable about themselves hi i'm totally new here i have no idea what i'm doing i spent 10 years in engineering and absolutely hated life and i kind of found this and I'm, i'm hoping to find a home here and some new relationships and i've heard linkedin's awesome that person would probably get like an insane amount of engagement by comparison not using you know a generic, you know, everyone says just share tips about copywriting if you're a copywriter, for example. So it really does depend. Yes. And like I said, using, for example, I'm thinking we get, well, we used to, when we lived in the city, we got water, like the big jugs of water, because the city water's nasty. Does that company need to have like an exceptional earth shattering website? Not really, because they're the only like water distributor in town. And when you need water, They just need to be findable. And you're going to search water in, I was in Kalamazoo. So you're going to search water in Kalamazoo and you're going to find the water company in Kalamazoo. Ta-da. You don't need anything earth shattering, but with a lot of the companies we work with, they do need something a little bit different to stand out. You know, now there are two water guys in Kalamazoo. Oh no. How are you going to be better than that guy? And arguably it's not with website content, but it's some other usability feature or something. But that's where we sit. So yes, there are some people where a template works absolutely fine and that's great and it'll get you to mediocre. You know, you own a lawn care company. I don't care about your website. I care about how my lawn looks. But for others that who don't want to settle or can't settle with mediocre, then yeah, you have to go beyond a template.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you've done the research. You don't use too much of templates. You try not to use them because you have like your unique way. And then you mentioned something about ADHD. As a copywriter, how do you have ADHD and how do you deal with all the research and all the focused writing? How do you manage that? Yeah.
0: So I actually have hyperfocus, which is really fun. So we talked about this a little bit. I've actually written about this, that it's taken me 36 years, but I figured out how my brain works. So I have the ability to focus to a fault, which is cool. I joke that I bleed Adderall. I don't take it. But what I mean by that is if I'm engaged in something and I'm writing something and I'm focused on it, then my house could literally be on fire and it would take someone to physically pry me away from the computer for me to stop. So I can usually hammer out like blogs, ebooks, whatever in hours, like not days, because again, you'd have to like kick me away from my computer to get me to stop. I don't have an office because I don't have a large house. I sit at the kitchen table and the kids are all around me and we homeschool and all that stuff. And I still get a lot done and I know that other people can't do that. So I would say I got the best part of that world where I can focus really really well. The other part that's interesting though is I also I joke that I can see like every angle on a subject at once, which is kind of nice. So this helps with hook writing is you have a topic and you're like how do I write a hook for this topic and you kind of need to let your mind go to think about 800 different ways to approach something to go, yeah, that one's funny or like this will get somebody's attention or one of those things. And I'm able to let my mind free to find that approach, which is cool, and then suck back in when it's time to focus and get something done. What I did notice about how I work, and I, again, it's one of those things I wish I could encourage people to take the time and really learn themselves. But to say that I did it on purpose again would be a lie because it's something I fell into kind of by accident, is I found out that I start the day and I'm generally more of a pleasant person if somebody interrupts me or they want breakfast or something, then yeah, I'll make breakfast and we'll hang out, whatever. We can talk. As the day goes on, I get more tunnel vision and I get more stressed and I get more anxious, all of those things. And then I needed the last hour of the day. I call it my power hour, but four to five, like I just need that time and nobody touched me and I just need to do what I need to do. What I've learned is I do squirrel after the next shiny object. So if I'm working on something and something else pops up, I start working on that next thing. And then somebody else asks me a request, I go work on that thing. And then somebody asks me something else, I go work on that thing. But what I don't do is I don't forget any of the things that I started. So what happens is I build this list in my head. And like I said, it peaks around three, four o'clock where like I've worked on 12 things, but I remember like the 11 that I still need to finish. Like even though, yes, I bounced all over and I got halfway done with everything. And then I need that last hour of clean out. So by understanding myself, I understand like, oh, if I actually recognize that I'm changing tasks when I shouldn't be based on priority, then I need to stop. Or like I am able to relax if I can put it on a list and get to it the next day and set a reminder for myself to complete something the next day. But all of this has come through. I wish I was saying purposeful introspection, but it's come through, you know, part of it by happenstance, part of it by learning and part of it by observing myself. But I think a lot of people can benefit from working better when they take a second and understand when do they feel the most stressed and why, when do they feel most creative and why. I'm a giant fan of making a routine, even if it's a stupid fake routine, to get you in a creative mood. To think when I put this band on and I'm sitting here with this lamp on, I am creative. It kind of cripples you if you like go travel now and I'm in a hotel and I don't have that lamp or whatever, but like find what works for you and do that thing. I'm taking time to do that is really hard. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not preaching because I did not do that well myself and fell into it by accident, which is awesome, but not repeatable. Right. So,
1: yeah. I mean, I once read somewhere that those type of small, as you mentioned, you know, just like an athlete who is getting ready for the race. If you have those small reminders of to your brain that you need to focus now, it really helps. Either it can be a, like a sand that you burn, or for me, it's the headphones when I put them on, and there's like a very specific playlist, which is like a list of five different songs that are turning back and back. I, I'm focused and I can finish, like I can work like for three hours and finish stuff. <laughs> so it's quite interesting to hear it from a person who has ADHD and who has also five kids in the house. <laughs>
0: yeah, we juggle.
1: Congratulations on that. <laughs> Before we finish, I have one last question because we are approaching to the end of the year Mm -hmm. before we are exhausted with 2023 predictions, (laughs) because probably we're going to read like a million of them in the next month. I would like to ask you not the predictions, but the things that doesn't work in copywriting and you think that it's going to evolve in the new year or should evolve.
0: Well, all right. So first you mentioned a misconception. I think one misconception that I see everywhere all the time that drives me nuts is short copy works better. Like, fewer words, better. Shortest, better. But it's everywhere, and everybody preaches it, and every time I see it, I try to squish it. It first occurred to me when I was reading, like, scientific advertising and Ogilvy on advertising and some of the old classics, and they said, would you ever have a salesperson in a room with someone and restrict how much they can say? That wouldn't make any sense, right? So it is... They said long copy outperforms short copy every time. And they were direct mail people and all that stuff, right? I send this out. I get a direct response to what I sent out, which is like attribution that we can't really even get today. The example I always use is Nike with just do it. They didn't say do it. They didn't say do. They said just because of the personality, your personality shines through with the extra words. I saw a bag of chips yesterday that said like, you need this on the bag, but it was really funny. It was like junk food, like snacky junk food. And it's funny because either you can be mad and say it's presumptuous or you can be like, I do need that. But the shortest copy would not to have that at all, right, would just be to say chips. But we know that. And we know like if you look at menu items. Yeah. If you look at menu items, if you add like pan seared scallops instead of scallops, right? So it just drives me nuts when I see that. So one thing I've had clients say, this headline's a little long. And I'm like, yeah, but does it work? Well, I feel like it should be shorter. Yeah, but why? Like, is it working or is it not working? So I'd say one misconception I always have is it's not about short. You can be too long. You have to be just right. But the personality is where you can stuff in. You know, when you have extra words is where you stuff in your personality. So I shouldn't say extra words, but the words you need to do it. So that would be a misconception. What does the future hold for copywriting? I think similar to the templates. Right now we are seeing... The explosion of AI artwork, right? And so people are saying now the creativity is you have to give it a prompt. But sometimes you just want like a specific thing. Like the AI artwork can make you, I want a mushroom with sunglasses on. Great, I have a picture of a mushroom with sunglasses. But it doesn't look kind of like I want it to look. Instead of being grayish, I want it a little more brownish. Instead of this, I want that. And I can't really describe it, but I kind of need something that's a little more... There are these conversations. I think of we just worked with that illustrator on the ebook. In some places I'm like, I don't know what I want, but I know I don't want this. You know what I mean? Like there's something that's irking me like ah and I can't put my handle on it. So that is where you could either say, That's good enough. In which case you'd use the AI artwork, right? Wow. Well, Because it's more of like, oh, this is fun, but I don't have like a vested interest in it being exactly the way I want. Or you could struggle with it for a long time and be like, I'm going to try to figure out how to get you to make this more brownish. And I could type in brown and then it turns out way too brown and like less brown, light brown, mildly brown, you know, or you go work with an illustrator who might even use the AI as part of his tools, but has the experience to know like, okay, I'm going to put a filter on this or something to get you the right color you're looking for. I think you'll see the same thing with copy. So again, instead of the templates being just templates, now they can be more intelligent templates and they will help a lot of people get a lot better. It will never create the next Dollar Shave Club. So Dollar Shave Club is, if people have seen that, you know, they made one silly single take commercial and it blew up. Or like the What Did the Fox Say song, something like that. Oh, yeah. Where it's like, but that's the point. Everyone knows it and you're like, oh, yeah. Because I think to some point, AI converges, it's like this works, and then everything focuses on this works until it stops working, and that's like the your versus my CTA we looked at. So there was a competitive product I was looking at called Persado, and it uses AI to write your push notifications. So again, you might start getting push notifications that are better than you would have sent, or they use industry lessons of if you say – click back to checkout. So let's say you abandon cart. You buy something and then you leave and then you get a note saying, hey, don't forget, there's something in your cart. Do you say, hey, don't forget, there's something in your cart or do you say you forgot something in your cart or you say you left something behind or don't forget this thing in your cart or do you want to finish There's a million possibilities. What one works best? So we set up a big experiment, if you're AI, and you test all these responses of what people respond to and you decide this is the best one. But then what do you do? You start to apply that across the board to everybody because it works the best, right? So one feedback I saw... From a person who used it is once you use the software, you will notice everyone else who uses it too, because all of the messages all start to sound (laughs) the same. So
1: Yeah, because everyone is doing a checkout card and they are sending the same scenario email and they are selling the same stuff. (laughs) Yeah, but you'd never
0: get I'm trying to think of like a ridiculous example and but you'd never get like the truly nuts out-of-the-box, out-of-the-blue response. So, but again. If I'm the water guy in Kalamazoo, I don't care because all I need is a, I need something to send somebody to say, Hey, it's time to get your water this week. And I don't care if it's, it's time to get your water this week or feeling thirsty or whatever. I just need you to get your water and come in. So for those companies, that will be fine. Where it should scare copywriters is if there's nothing unique about you. And of course, I say that there is something unique about every person, right? But if you haven't discovered it and if you're not focused on it and if you're not focused on the right customers who care about that, and again, don't fight customers to try to make them into someone who cares. You have to find people who care. If you're one of those people who's not focused in the right areas, doesn't have a niche, not looking at the right customers, then yeah, you totally should be scared. If not, then you can fast track yourself into being the creative director, right? And manage the tools that are being used under you realize, oh, they're probably sending this to everybody. I'm going to change it. And here's how I'm going to change it. Be more strategic in your thinking. So I think it was a push and why I accepted a position and moved up to a head of growth. You know, I still do copywriting, but why I moved up that position is because I saw the value and, ooh, I need to get more strategic. I really enjoy what I do, but I need to get mm-hmm. more strategic about how I do it learn more about the distribution channels and all these other things because that day is coming, that change is coming where you can't be mediocre anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I feel like there is a the pendulum of, you know, they always say about, let's say, for example, marketing, it's about art and science and the good balance about art mm-hmm. and science, which I used to hate that terminology. But now I love that terminology because, I mean, that balance has been lost to the science part of it, which everyone is trying to do. Things with AI, time management, data management, which people say, data management but I don't know what they do with that much of data but the thing is that we need to have a little bit more creativity and artistic approach to things Hmm. I think that part is kind of missing what I feel on the last one year especially is that everything is feeling so optimized although Maybe it's out of the hands of a person, but it looks automized. I feel that I would like to see more of the creative work that's been done, which comes to the point okay, marketing is also about art, Mm -hmm. it's not only about science. Yeah, thanks a lot for all of these. Yeah, would you like anything to add?
0: Oh, I was just gonna say, what I think is the most fun between art and science lies experimentation. So we are scared, marketers are scared, if they really admit to themselves to take bets, to take risks, to run experiments. And it's like, I feel like if you look at your AI example, you need to run experiments with it. So this isn't for copywriters, but just marketers in general. Like we need to run and do more experiments, big risks, getting big payouts because there are so many options. There are so many things competing for people's attention. There are so many other things to distract anybody at this point, literally in your pocket. You can do whatever you want, play a game, watch a movie, whatever. You have to be unique because if you use the AI tools at this point, you're just kind of blending with everybody else who also is.
1: Thanks so much for the time. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for helping me out to get back to the season. (laughs) Absolutely. I hope not to give any other break because as they say you know with content you have to be consistent it's quality but it's also quantity and so on but I hope the quality of this podcast is <laughs> uh, especially on the sound side it uh, will be much better than the others thanks a lot for the time James
0: awesome well thank you very much